Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Ryan Watts. Ryan is the co-founder and CEO of South San Francisco-based Denali Therapeutics. Denali is one of the prominent development stage biotech companies working on treatments for neurodegenerative diseases. It has a pipeline with seven drug candidates in clinical development. It's developing small molecules and large molecules against a range of neurodegenerative conditions that includes rare diseases such as Hunter syndrome and ALS, as well as more common maladies such as Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. Ryan is a scientist by training. He did his PhD at Stanford and spent the first part of his career running labs at Genentech. He joined with former Genentech colleagues Alex Schuth and Mark Tessier-Levine to co-found Denali in 2015. The company secured a Series A financing of $217 million, which was big then and is still big now. The company doesn't yet have any products on the market, but it has amassed $1.34 billion in cash as of the end of 2022 and has established a broad base of support through partnerships with Sanofi, Biogen, and Takeda Pharmaceuticals. This is a wide-ranging conversation that includes Ryan's path into biotech and neuroscience, some of the classic challenges of the field, and reasons why he's optimistic that progress is coming. This conversation was recorded back in December. Normally, I don't hold episodes this long, but I've had something of a backlog to work through. Even so, all of the issues we discuss here are still current, including Ryan's thoughts on the big Alzheimer's news from last fall surrounding ASI and Biogen's lecanemab. And now for a word from the sponsor of the long run, Scientist.com. Tired of spending hours searching for the exact research products and services you need? Scientist.com is here to help. Their award-winning digital platform makes it easy to find and purchase life science reagents, lab supplies, and custom research services from thousands of global laboratories. Scientist.com helps you outsource everything but the genius. Save time and money and focus on what really matters, your groundbreaking ideas. Learn more at scientist.com slash long run. Now, please join me and Ryan Watts on the long run. Ryan Watts, welcome to the long run. Great to be here, Luke. Looking forward to our conversation today. So, Ryan, I have to admit, with a name like Denali Therapeutics, uh, I will try not to be too biased in your favor, but this is one of my favorite mountains in the world. I climbed it 10 years ago, and uh, I'm thinking about going back. Like Even just thinking about your company, uh, it conjures up images in my mind of features like Motorcycle Hill and Squirrel Hill and Washburn's Thumb, which I, I hope you have conference rooms named after these things. But it's just a, it's an incredible place and uh, an inspiring one uh, to me and, and I think to drug developers. Like I think there are analogies there. Yeah, Luke. Well, I'm you know I I I look forward to living vicariously through you. I follow you and your and all your adventures on mountains. And of course, for us, you know, the naming of Denali um, is about the inspiration and the challenge. You know, it's a it's it's as you know, having hiked it, I have not hiked it. I wish I I wish I had the time to do that. Actually, I spend more time going downhill than uphill when it comes to mountains. I love I love skiing, but uh, you know they are inspiring, um, you know, natural beauties, but with incredible challenges. And I think for us historically, naming Denali Denali was just that um, something that was not conquerable for many many years, and obviously with tools and teams uh, had the chance to conquer you know the unconquerable. And I think that's what we're looking at for neurodegenerative diseases right now. Yeah. Yeah. It takes a long time. It's really hard. It's really cold. It's scary. <laughs> uh, but when you get up there, boy, it's uh, it's really beautiful and uh, rewarding. Yeah, early on, early on at Denali, we had a friend of mine who had you know, one of the few people to hike the seven summits and sell the seven seas uh, came to Denali and told us about his experience. In fact, Luke, we should have you and, and tell us. But uh, it was actually one of the, he said, one of his toughest climbs, and he lost one of his best friends uh, on that climb. Uh, interestingly, on the way down, uh, not on the way up as they were caught in a storm. So, you know, obviously formidable, inspiring, uh, and and no doubt, you know, meaning uh, the big one uh, in, in the native language. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've only got six of the seven summits. I still have to go to Russia. So uh, when peace breaks out there, um, maybe, uh, maybe I'll get that. Um, okay. So, Ryan, let's talk about the company. Let's talk, talk about you first uh, before we dive into what you're really trying to do for neurodegeneration. Um, where where do you come from? Where'd you grow up? Yeah, well, uh, I grew up at the, the foothills of the Wasatch Mountains in Salt Lake City, Utah. Um, you know, born and, and raised in, in, in the mountains and, you know, spent, uh, <laughs> you know, endless amount of time in, uh, uh, you know, hiking and, and in ski resorts. And I'm the youngest of seven children. So I had a bunch of older brothers, actually five older brothers and one older sister, uh, who were also, you know, love the mountains. And I, I tried to do my best to keep up with them. Uh, and I think in doing so really fell in love with, uh, with nature and its inspiration. Okay, big family. So, um, are you Mormon? I am. I'm born and raised Mormon, practicing Mormon, uh, as we call it, the you know member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints. That's 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 who I am. Uh huh. Uh huh. So, uh, what kind of schools did you attend as a kid? Yeah. So, I basically entirely public schools uh, in the neighborhood school, uh, and in fact, I think probably the thing I remember most of being in public school. Uh, as I wasn't a fantastic reader. It took me a long time uh, to learn how to read. I don't know why I absolutely love reading now. Um, and maybe the content is different now than just sitting down with a book. Um, and and it was a little challenging. But fortunately, uh, I fell in love with mathematics first, chemistry second, and really didn't get introduced to biology until I went to college at the University of Utah. And it was at that point where, um, you know, it was, you know, just a... Um, my eyes were open. I love chemistry. I thought I was going to be a chemist, um, but realized that biology was the frontier. And I think biochemistry was probably the first area where I was you know, really interested. There was enough known. Uh, but then I got, even as an undergrad, got into neuroscience uh, through a number of reasons. And I'm like, that's the great unknown. It's, it's really the human brain uh, and the biology of the nervous system and cells within the nervous system. Well, okay. So you went to the University of Utah. You stayed close to home. Um, why did you uh, decide to go there? I think it was probably because you know I was a, maybe a little bit of a slow starter as a as a, you know in elementary and and in high school. But there was a chemistry teacher in high school that changed everything, Mister Smith. Uh, he's since passed away, but I think he had the same influence on me that he did on several of my brothers. And uh, he was a very difficult chemistry teacher, but he was fantastic. And I fortunately was able to go back to him while I was working at Genentech and thank him for setting me on that path, right? And and I didn't actually apply for any other schools. I was in a summer chemistry program in my junior year of high school and realized that the University of Utah had incredible sciences, um, biology and chemistry and, and otherwise. And so that was, I think, the natural fit for me to begin with. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's a uh, state school. Uh, if you got seven kids, I, I, I got to imagine like co cost might have been a factor. <laughs> it was definitely a factor. And my my parents were so kind. They they paid for my college. And and uh, that was I'm sure that was part of it. But, you know, I think back then it was uh, it was hard for me to imagine leaving the mountains, basically. <laughs> so it, it was chemistry and then biochemistry. Um, what? Um, Say a little bit more about what intrigued you and, and what time frame are we talking about here? Where were your undergrad years? Yeah. So in in uh thanks for taking me back. I'm trying to remember the exact years, 94 uh to basically 2000. It's six years because you serve a two-year mission. Uh so you take two years off and then and then uh so I did a year of of, of college and served a mission and then came home. Uh and you know, Where did you do your mission? Actually, of all places, Jacksonville, Florida. You know, you know, as I, those of you that know, uh, you know, the 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 church. You don't choose where you go. You put your uh, you put your papers in, and you you go where you go. Uh, and obviously, obviously, being one of seven children, I had brothers that were anywhere from Switzerland to Taiwan uh, to New Zealand to Georgia and Chicago. <laughs> so broad broad range, but uh, uh, and and I think what happened is. Um, you know, as I as I was uh, in school initially, uh, I think that I learned quickly that chemistry was a mature science, right? And I and I and I felt like 
I wanted to be at the frontier, but I didn't even know what that was. And because I had this incredible chemistry teacher, that's where it all started. And, and it wasn't until I took a biology, human genetics, cell biology, it's actually a cell biology, human genetics class combined. And some biochemistry was basically the intro to biology that I was blown away. I just could not believe how incredible and interesting. And then shortly thereafter, I think the maybe the next semester or two semesters after I took a in a, a neuroscience class, and then I knew I was where I belonged. But at the time, I was actually working uh, in a children's hospital in the OR. I was a pediatric technician in the operating room for two years, uh, which was also an, an amazing experience to you know really be on the front line of medical care. Uh, and it was during that time that you know, I met with one of the founders of the local biotech companies that had focused on genetics, and you know Utah's a, a huge uh, you know genetic. Um, uh, resource mainly because of large, you know, Mormon families, uh, and and I would had a, a pretty interesting conversation um, uh, with this founder that basically steered me towards uh, more of the research side and the science side, and 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 I think that you know looking back on that, definitely those those some of the instructors and professors who then I started doing research in their lab, uh, for example, like Toto Oliveira that discovered these conotoxins. You know, these most inspiring people who have just made incredible discoveries. And it's interesting, once you start undergraduate research, you're immediately at the front line. You're actually immediately there. The things who ran like a Drosophila for genetic screens for, um, you know, changes in synapse development. And it was like, I'm like, wow, I can actually make discoveries, you know, as a young undergrad. And it was just so inspiring. And I just, I fell in love with science and that's never changed. And I think the science of Denali is what I'm most passionate about. Were you thinking at one point about becoming an MD, like actually treating patients? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that was part of working in a pediatric trauma one center. You know, I was taking call uh, once a once a month um, as part of the team to respond to traumas. And, you know, it had its, it, there's, I, I mean, I, I just have an enormous amount of respect for doctors. Of course, we have many physicians that work at Denali as well and have worked at Genentech. And, I think what it was not anything in particular that drove me away from medicine, but it was the it was the passion for discovery that really pushed me towards research. Um, and I think there was a little bit of I mean, no one thinks of of research as instant gratification, but there are little victories along the way uh, when you're a researcher. A little, you know, you celebrate along the way, and you realize you're inventing a medicine. There's hundreds of thousands of things that can go wrong. So you have to celebrate those, those, um, they seem like incremental successes, but they're probably often there are places where no one has ever been before. And so they're, you know, they're, I just love that. I love those incremental, but totally novel advances in science. And you know, what's interesting too, and I talked about this with uh, Chris Gibson, a previous guest on the podcast, who's there in Utah. Utah has this great tradition as a center of excellence in, uh, biology, genetics. And uh, it's it's part of the beauty of the scientific enterprise is that we in America, we have all these great institutions. Uh, it's not just the Ivy League or Berkeley. <laughs> um, and there are places where a, a young person who's curious and wants to learn can, can plug into this kind of environment, get exposed to science, not be suffocated by too much hierarchy or, or you know, you can follow your curiosity. There's good support for it, and it it gives rise to discoveries and it launches careers. I think you said it perfectly. I mean, that's that's the spirit of the West. Maybe you know, also the West Coast, but definitely you know, in 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 Utah and Colorado, uh, there's an opportunity. You know, for someone like me, I, I you know, having done my undergraduate university undergraduate at the University of Utah, then going to Stanford. I realize that the quality of students at the top are are very similar, but the opportunities are enormous in some of these, you know, state schools. And and uh, you know, I just I'm still very passionate about. It. I'm an adjunct faculty member and teach a uh, drug discovery and drug development course at the University of Utah because I didn't understand that the discoveries I I, I was actually making could have translational relevance. That wasn't part of the education, and so for the last five years. I've taught this course on how to invent medicines all the way from like 
how do you find a drug target to how do you market a medicine? Um, and I was really fortunate because I had spent time at Genentech during the time of really major successes in oncology and started in oncology to actually taste success, but then went back to the most challenging, you know, therapeutic area, which is, which is neuroscience. But I think to your yeah. point, Luke, I mean, it's really, you know, th there are certain places to get educated that offer opportunities, especially for someone like me who was, you know, in a public school system. I, I didn't feel like I was particularly intelligent, but I definitely have no problem working super hard. And if, if opportunity was there, I'd put my, you know, heart and soul into it. That's great. Okay. So let's fast forward a bit. You, you go to grad, uh, graduate school at Stanford. Um, what did you uh, study there and, and who did you work with? Yeah. So I worked with Lee Chin Lo, who discovered a genetic way of marking cells and making them homozygous mutant for genes. It's actually called the Markham system. This was in Drosophila and he's since invented the technique uh, also in, in, uh, in mice. Um, but basically I studied how the nervous system developments develops and actually interestingly how it remodels during development and probably i was a little bit of an unusual graduate student my son was nine months old when i started graduate school um got married as an undergrad and we had a child and he was nine months old and and uh and it was it was fun because i was studying how the nervous system remodels what are the molecular mechanisms of remodeling in the in the low lab and i was following my son's development and in fact in my thesis defense, I had a video where I had basically videoed my son walking at nine months. He was very young when he started walking. And then one year, nine months, two year, nine months, three year, nine months, and relatively you know quick um, graduate study. Uh, and that's the time where the nervous system is undergoing this massive neuronal remodeling. Um, in fact, at age two, we have the maximum number of connections. And the question is, what are the molecular mechanisms of this remodeling? It's kind of interesting because now you know, at, at Denali, we're working on some childhood diseases like Hunter syndrome, where you affect this development at a critical time. And we'll get back to that later. But it's interesting how your scientific career sort of weaves in and out and the things that you learn as an undergrad or, or graduate student come back to you, especially when you have a, you know, you're working on a broad portfolio. Well, if you're looking at your son in the morning and changing diapers, I mean, it definitely uh, provides some real world relevance to uh, some of the work that you were doing in the lab. Yeah. And, and some real real world world uh, uh, um, motivation to get done with the graduate school. <laughs> when your father, as a graduate student, as well, a father, was, it was I was definitely an outlier. I, I, in fact, I didn't know another graduate student, certainly in my class, that was a, was a father. <laughs> Yeah, extra motivation to go get a job. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so, so so you went to Genentech, uh, and what did you start working on there? Yeah, so I mean, I don't think I uh, I just look back and consider myself incredibly fortunate to be at certain places at certain times, and you know, I happened to join Genentech just on the hills of success with Receptin and Avastin, and it I mean, it was an amazing place. But I will say that you know, having finished my graduate work and was contemplating doing a postdoc uh, and actually had agreed to go to a postdoc on the East Coast, but didn't feel like it was the right thing for me. Uh, it was a big transition because I had fallen so much in love with the science and the basic mechanisms that I, you know, I got to a point where I could only imagine myself as, uh, um, you know, as, 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 you know, basically being a, a professor. But it's hard when you're in the Bay Area because there's these incredible companies like Genentech and so many connections. And and basically, uh, I joined and started working on oncology and, and angiogenesis and um, and learned how to invent medicines. Uh, but it was an extraordinarily st stressful time because you know, I had, didn't even know what angiogenesis was. I was working in fruit flies. They don't technically have blood vessels. They have a uh, uh, a lymphatic system. So it was, it was, it was awesome. I mean, the learning curve was as steep as ever. I, the only other time in my life that had a steeper learning curve was, uh, is actually founding Denali, <laughs> but that was a steep learning curve. So, so you joined Genentech, this would have been kind of the early to mid aughts. This is really when the company was on that fast growth trajectory, becoming the world's largest maker of cancer medicines. Rituxan, Herceptin, Avastin, you named them. Um, you got, to, and so this is a little bit of a departure from your neuroscience right. at, at this point. Right. And I think that, you know, I, I now as I teach these courses on drug discovery and drug development, I, I think there's one phenotype that's really important to be successful as a scientist in industry. 
and it's the ability to be easily excited by any science because you have to have that intellectual flexibility to basically go from developmental neurobiology to angiogenesis to alzheimer's and then the like the perfect middle place for me and it was almost like meant to be all these sort of unique um experiences first in developmental neurobiology as mentioned then in oncology drug development but focused on blood vessels uh then to alzheimer's disease where we started working on the genetics of alzheimer's and then ultimately to the blood brain barrier and you know what's fascinating about a place like genentech is that it's also very academic it had it's structured like lab you know you have your own lab you have your own scientists in your lab you actually have postdocs in your lab and we started to focus in on the blood brain barrier we want to understand how it develops how it's disrupted and and i think what ended up being the biggest focus but maybe not the initial focus was how to transport medicines across this blood brain barrier uh, and that kind of became my you know singular passion at least the one where I'd go as deep, but I still loved like cancer and Alzheimer's and ALS and had worked in all of those areas as well. Well, part of the cool thing about science is that uh, it um, it goes off in different directions, unexpected directions. And sometimes things are connected in ways that you never would have guessed. So I'm I'm trying to think here about what was happening at that time. So we mentioned Avastin. It's the VEGF inhibitor. Uh, anti-angiogenesis interacting with uh, the formation of blood vessels that feed tumors. Now, one of the indications for Avastin is glioblastoma, so a cancer of the brain. But it's a large molecule. It's an antibody. It doesn't actually cross that blood-brain barrier. It has this effect on angi uh, the, the, the brain tumors through some other way. Was this something that you guys were like trying to figure out like the mechanism, how it works, and that that led into more of this deeper need to understand the blood-brain barrier? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, in fact, that's not the path that we took to the blood-brain barrier. We actually, okay, what we did, and I'll, I'll talk about that. Let me talk about that first because you're exactly right. Uh, and, I'll, and I'll recall a very interesting moment I had. So I was, I was um, Genentech would often bring patients in to talk about their story. Uh, and they brought in a glioblastoma patient. And he was, you know, maybe 10 years older than me. I think he's my age now. I think he was in his mid-40s. Uh, and he and his wife were speaking to a group of maybe a hundred people. And uh, it was in one of the cafeterias at Genentech. And such an incredible experience. He basically, you know, was in a coma uh and completely unable to move. And he took a Vastin. And he recovered. And, and I was like, how is that possible? What happened? And what's really interesting about GBMs, and so this is where there's that interconnect. And I'll talk about how we got into the blood-brain barrier in a moment. But GBMs have a massively disrupted blood-brain barrier. They basically have a very high expression of VEGF that result in VEGF. People don't know this, but its original name was vascular permeability factor. So VP at you know uh, F and and then VEGF came along as vascular endothelial growth factor, but with high concentration of VEGF, it basically makes vessels very leaky. And if you look at some of the images of patients treated with Avastin, uh, what you see is almost an immediate repair of the blood-brain barrier. And the way that that's measured is by using gadolinium and MRI. And so with 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 these GBMs, you'll see massive leakage of the blood-brain barrier. And with, I mean, Luke, within hours, you treat with anti-VEGF, which would, of course, cross through all those leaky barriers, bind to VEGF, and block the permeability. And you see this, you know, 12 to 24-hour recovery where there's no more gadolinium leakage. And I think that resulted in immediate correction of the barrier that then led to this patient having you know back to normal brain function but what is actually fascinating is that there's very little evidence of um overall survival benefit with the vast in, in gbm so what ends up happening is that you no longer have you know this leaky barrier and it has an acute benefit in terms of the function of the nervous system you know especially the neurons that are adjacent to the tumor where there would be leakiness um, but essentially what happens is these are such aggressive tumors that they then just migrate along existing vessels and take over normal cells. So they find a different way to find their oxygen. 
which is devastating, of course. So, you know, that was, I, I had already started working on the blood-brain barrier when this patient had come and I thought and went and looked at the scans and like, why is it possible that you can have this immediate effect? And it's this, in fact, immediate repair of the barrier is the mechanism. So the way we actually got into the blood-brain barrier is that we had started working on antibodies to A-beta uh, for Alzheimer's disease. And, and the reason for that is that Genentech um, is really, the origin of Genentech is biotherapeutics. It's recombinant DNA technology, human insulin, you know, obviously is the prime example. And the idea was if if we were going to enter a space like neuroscience or re-enter, there was no neuro going on at the time when I joined Genentech. And as you point out, it was a time of extensive growth. There were 6,000 employees when I joined up to 13,000 and then acquired by Roche and 80,000. So it was such an, an amazing time. But the idea was, let's enter neuroscience in a way that we may have a unique opportunity to differentiate. So let's focus on large molecules. And at the time, the most exciting approach were antibodies to A-beta, which as we all know, has been a very long and windy path um, from the original discovery that active immunization would, would reduce plaque. And it was in that setting where the in Alzheimer's disease, there is not an overtly disrupted blood-brain barrier. In fact, my lab, I had a, 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 a postdoc that worked extensively on how disrupted is the barrier in Alzheimer's. And it's very minimal. You know, there is some vascular change, but large molecules do not readily cross the blood-brain barrier. Uh, and so we, we knew that some antibody, definitely antibody gets into the brain, but how much for how long? And that's where we discovered that the majority of antibodies, depending on their affinity, would have no effect in brain unless given at very high doses and dosing matters. And we'll get back to that as we talk about the recent, you know, uh, A-beta antibody data. But that was the origin. It said, you know, if we could solve the blood-brain barrier for large molecules, this would be a huge unmet need. Um, and I think that's interesting, too, because, um, you know, it's, it, it's, it's one of those areas where at the time, you know, we had imagined that oral delivery of large molecules or getting large molecules into the cell or crossing the blood-brain barrier were really some of the three biggest unmet needs with biotherapeutics. And so we started, we, my lab and, and another lab, Mark Dennis, who's in the protein engineering side, the two of us started working on the blood-brain barrier. And this is true of small molecules as well. I mean, the vast majority don't get across or when they do, it's in very tiny concentrations. Um, so you had to figure out like just some of the the mechanics, the the basics of because I don't were there a lot of academic labs like really working on this? Yeah, the first uh, no. The short answer is no. There were not a lot of academic labs. And I think the reason it was sort of this it was also at an interesting interface. It wasn't really vascular biology and it wasn't neuroscience, right? And therefore it wasn't you know and it was an engineering challenge. So it's no one is really trained in the blood brain barrier. Um, uh, and that ended up being, I and mean, that's why the fantastic thing of being in a place like Genentech is that vascular biology experts, uh, at the time, the neuro experts were, were limited, uh, but I was one of them certainly. Uh, and, and then, and then, you know, engineers, people could actually engineer the blood brain barrier. Uh, and that was, that was so exciting. I mean, I think, and I, you know, I, I, I sometimes I'm embarrassed by these type of podcasts because I know their personal stories, but. There are actually so many more people that I've engaged with who have been fundamental to, you know, any successes, uh, you know, that we've had. And I think one example of that was Mark Dennis, who was one of the protein engineers, and we've worked together for a very long time. He's now a fellow uh, at Denali, and and this is the story of science, right? It's it's finding great collaborators that bring diff very different backgrounds, and then solving these problems. Tired of spending hours searching for the exact research products and services you need? Scientist.com is here to help. Their award-winning digital platform makes it easy to find and purchase life science reagents, lab supplies, and custom research services from thousands of global laboratories. Scientist.com helps you outsource everything but the genius. Save time and money and focus on what really matters, your groundbreaking ideas. Learn more at scientist.com slash long run. And for sponsorship opportunities on the Long Run Podcast, to inquire about bringing me to your company for a speaking engagement, see my business development representative, Stephanie Barnes. Go to Timmerman Report and hit contact. 
what was happening in neuroscience in these years? You mentioned there was a whole lot of work in industry about the A-beta um, hypothesis for, uh, for Alzheimer's. Um, there were also these GWAS studies going on in academia to identify, well, what are some of these targets that might be um, genetically uh, linked or causative of some of these neurodegenerative diseases? A lot of discovery work. Exactly. So, I, you know, one of my favorite visuals is essentially a chronological um, uh, representation of discovery of genes in Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and ALS. And it's interesting, it's notable that it was like 1991, you know, that, that APP was discovered, uh, 93 or so, APOE4, and 97 alpha-synuclein, and 93 SOD1. These are all some of the original, um, you know, 100% penetrant uh, mutations that lead to early onset Alzheimer's or to Parkinson's or, or to ALS. Um, and they were the original like foundational discoveries. And they were essentially the origin of, um, of, you know, they were the origin of some of the early work, you know, the Alzheimer's work focused on amyloid plaques because APP was one of the first genes to be discovered in 1991. And now if you fast forward to, as you point out, during those times at, at that time, at least for me at Genentech, it was really 2008 that you saw this incredible uptick in genetic discovery. And we know why that's the case. And it's not just in Alzheimer's or Parkinson's ALS. It was because of the ability to sequence the human genome, you know, to have SNP chips, a lot of the work by Illumina, you know, Jay Flatley and, and, and their team. Uh, and that has laid the foundation for these genetic insights. Now we need to understand the molecular mechanisms of those mutations, but you can see if, if APP was discovered in 91 and just several weeks ago, we have the first robust clinical data set that removing amyloid uh, can be beneficial. That is a long time. You know, Luke, it's a lot of trial and, 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 and error. And I think the blood brain barrier has certainly been one of those limiting factors. And I think the way you get around that is you just give higher doses or more frequent dosing. But there have also been other limiting factors, like how do we measure brain function? What are the biomarkers, but also what are the clinical endpoints, which still remain very challenging? Yeah, they're, uh, they're often not uh, molecular and quantifiable in the same way that we see with cancer. That's right. Um, I mean, you, with cancer, you can take an image. Right. And, and I think that's the other thing is, you know, think about what led to the molecular revolution in cancer. It was the discovery of the oncogenes. I think HER2 is a, a fantastic uh, example. So we, 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 we name these similar to oncogenes. We call them the degenogenes. So genes when mutated that cause neurodegeneration. And the first handful of those were APP, APOE in, in, in Alzheimer's, synuclein in, in Parkinson's and SOD1. Uh, in ALS. But as you point out in 2008, that was the beginning of the genetic revolution where GWAS now went, we had three or four hits in each area to 30 or 40, 50 and 60, you know, genetic hits, these degenogenes that, you know, when mutated are, are risk factors and some of which can be protective. It's very similar to like the tumor suppressors and the oncogenes. And uh, has the, I think the biggest difference is that they're germline. You know, you and I, we all carry these. I'm I'm an APOE4 carrier. We carry them throughout our lives. They're not selected against because they're they're diseases of aging, uh, and and because of that, you can now look at genetic subpopulations like LARC2, uh, you know, in Parkinson's disease, for example. So you uh, th these targets are becoming more interesting. Um, your team at Genentech is continuing to work on that blood-brain barrier, thinking about how to get uh, biotherapeutics to cross it. Uh, in insufficient way to to have a therapeutic effect. Uh, meanwhile, the uh, Genentech gets acquired by Roche, and so a lot is happening there. Um, what what happened around 2015 when you decided to you and your colleagues decided to uh, leave to start this new company? I think you know, looking back. In time, when when I was a graduate student at Stanford, I couldn't imagine being anything but a professor, just all in. Uh, and then through you know various connections, uh, was introduced to Genentech. And and then that, when I was at Genentech, I couldn't imagine being anywhere but Genentech. And I, I absolutely love it. I still love it to this day. I think it's such an extraordinary organization that combines 
thorough science and as passionate about patients. And there were amazing leaders at Genentech, you know, from Art Levinson to Richard Scheller to Sue Hellman and Mark Tessie Levine, and you know, just an amazing group of leaders at that time. There, there are multiple, you know, leaders over generations at at, at Genentech. But I think one thing um, happened to me, and one was that um, I think it started first with my wife's grandfather had Alzheimer's. I was working on Alzheimer's, and I and and it was very involved in Alzheimer's and the blood-brain barrier. Were really, the two areas that we were passionate about, and was leading the you know about a sixty scientist in the in the reborn. I had actually the first neuroscientist to sort of build up neuroscience back at Genentech. It didn't exist when I started, although there was a previous iteration of it. And about a year before founding Denali, my mother started to develop memory deficits. And I know my genetic profile and, 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 and as a result can impute my mother's profile, especially at kind of the age and, and signs. I just had this really deep desire to want to do more and had colleagues who had, for similar reasons or for various reasons, had you know the desire to do more. I look at like our board members, our early board members, Jay Flatley and David Shankine and you know, they're all there because they have a personal interest in trying to solve something like Alzheimer's. And I think it was, it ended up being an opportunity to have an impact. Uh, and I always, I tell everyone this, we're a very small company. I mean, now we're roughly 400 employees, which is still small compared to 6,000 when I joined Genentech. And you can, you, when you go to a company like Denali, you can't hide. I mean, there's, you're going to have an impact. It's going to be positive or it's going to be negative. Uh, but that's also super exciting because what you do matters. I mean, we spend so much time working that it matters. And I'm not I'm not implying that in big companies you can hide, but it's just different. It's a different, you know, it's a different um calculation. And so I I I just felt like it was that time, but um it it didn't happen overnight. It was, I mean, frankly, it was five years of considering and then definitely not doing it, then considering and definitely not doing it. And I think part of um, why it took so long is because there's very few places in, in the world as as amazing as Genentech, and and I personally loved all the people I was working with, and I just couldn't imagine leaving. Well, there's a matter of I don't know how to put this exactly prioritization or commitment. I mean, when you're in a startup and you're focused on Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, and that's it, like it's just all in on neuroscience. It's do or die. Like you've got to figure this out. The company's existence depends on it. Whereas it whenever you're in a large organization, I mean it's a it's part of a portfolio of activities that are going on. Not to say it's not important or it's not a priority. I'm sure it was. But um it's different that there's just that that laser focus intensity that it takes. Yeah, I think probably the uh, an analogy that you would relate to, uh, you know, having been on climbing teams and having to make key decisions. I mean, it, what you decide matters. If you're going to summit or not, you know, matters and, and assessing conditions. And it, that's exactly what it's like in a small company. Um, and it's very different in a large company. You know, you're, you're, not, you're not trying to summit the same way. Uh, and, and so it's, it's extremely motivating, but it's also death-defying. You know, it's really, it's nerve-wracking, probably is a better word. <laughs> Well, but so you get started with you finally take this plunge and uh, gosh, I mean, it was one of these mega rounds of 2015. I look back 217 million in the Series A. I mean, um, Bob Nelson, Arch Venture Partners, Flagship Ventures, a lot of people uh, liked what you and uh, your colleagues were doing. What was um, kind of your your initial mandate? Yeah, it's a... <laughs> Um, I think what, I mean, you've, I'm sure you've chatted with Bob before. Uh, he's one of the most inspiring investors and, you know, combining someone like me, who's probably very practical, very conservative, extremely data-driven. And I think Bob's data-driven, but in a different way. Um, it was a great combination, I felt like, and and with others, Alex, you know, Shuth, who who, you know, is one of the founding team members, Alex having his background in in business development, medicine, you know, MD and MBA, and also was like me, you know, what's the, how do we practically do this? You know, how do we build a portfolio where we can see early, mid and long-term success? You know, as you point out, we don't want to be a binary 
company based on one Alzheimer's hypothesis, you know, but rather build a platform. And, and, and as a result, we're going after, you know, lysosomal storage diseases, um, where we have seen, you know, very robust proof of concept. And, and these were, it was the idea is how do you build this company to last? And Alex and I actually spent a decade together doing deals uh, at Genentech, looking at, he was on the business development side, looking at every single neuro company with a focus on neurodegeneration, but literally every, all, all areas of neuro. And after five years, we started to imagine what would be the right way to build a company in neuro, where the timeline to ultimate success is very long. And it's really, in our mind, it was a combination of platform, portfolio, and partnerships. And you had to have that combination in order to have the staying power. But it's kind of interesting because that's not just neuroscience or neurodegeneration. You can go back. In fact, we just did this at the beginning of the year. We did sort of a survivor bias analysis of you know twenty biotech companies, you know from Regeneron to um, you know you name it, Regeneron, Alnylam, you know the entire list of companies that we view as you know very successful companies. And you look at that pattern of portfolio and partnerships uh, and pipeline and platform, you know, I think as, as part of that. And so it was, we were very deliberate in the early days to build out a platform and a portfolio and then began that the partnering component to it, which we have just seen as a, as a critical part of our long-term success. What, what um, would you say have been some of the big, um, accomplishments within Denali uh on on your on your platform so delivery uh, you mentioned getting across that blood brain barrier a lot but like delivery is that core challenge got to figure out like the dose and the duration the concentration that needs to get in there to have a therapeutic effect um what have what do you have, have been able to achieve on these uh on these scores yeah, it's probably one of the most exciting things about Denali. And I'll step back a little bit and just mention that we knew that the large molecule approach was going to be very challenging. And we knew that there were immediate, very exciting opportunities with small molecules. So if you look at our portfolio today, it's half small molecules, half large molecules. And the large molecules are enabled with our transport vehicle technology. But just one comment on small molecules, because you brought that up at the beginning, Luke. And that is that small molecules, it's about their molecular properties. So there's a certain set of criteria for a small molecule to readily cross the blood-brain barrier, molecular weight, polar surface area, hydrogen bond donors. It's generically termed the Lipinski rule of five. And you create a funnel to like invent a small molecule that's selective, that crosses a blood-brain barrier. And we have a team of chemists who are just frankly extraordinary. They've worked on this in this field for 15 plus years, some from Genentech, many from others, other areas. Now we have a dozen of you know, just basically this force of, um, you know, a special ops team that can invent small molecules across the blood barrier. And we just take them one at a time, you know, RIP kinase, uh, LARC2, EIF2B. These are some of our clinical stage programs. And we have, and the, the idea is that we just consistently go after some of these targets with small molecules. Large molecules, it's an entirely different challenge. And that is because they do cross the blood-brain barrier, but in limited concentrations. And really, the, 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 the way to have success with a large molecule in the brain is dose as high as possible. But the problem is, in, in diseases like lysosomal storage diseases, enzyme replacement therapies are not well tolerated. And everyone's looking for that minimally efficacious dose that's going to have an effect on, let's say, urine biomarkers or blood-based biomarkers. and and frankly, you can't give a high enough dose to get across the blood-brain barrier. We've tried to do that in in mice to give an extremely high dose because enzymes are cleared so rapidly. And, and so we wanted to build a platform that we could use for proteins, enzymes, uh, antibodies, antisense oligos. And so I'll highlight, you, you asked, what are some of the key insights? So the first is that we decided to engineer our receptor binds. We use an iron transporter, which is highly expressed in the blood-brain barrier. We actually have a a second receptor where probably in the not too distant future, we have really cool data on, on a second receptor as well. But the, the main one is using transferrin receptor and the portfolio right now, at least all the clinical stage portfolio is based on the transferrin receptor. And the idea is we wanted to build it in a, a binding site that allowed us still to use all the rest of the 
IgG and 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 so on. And so I think the first insight was to use the FC portion of the antibodies, essentially the legs. I, I think of an antibody as like a just like a human body, and the arms and hands are what bind the target, and the legs are the FC portion of the of the antibody that in that gives it like exquisite pharmacokinetics. It, it helps recycle these proteins uh, with the neonate FC receptor. And so we wanted to build the blood-brain barrier receptor binding into that FC and then allows us to make FC fusions, full-length antibodies, you know, enzyme fusions, antisense oligo fusions. Uh, and so I think the most exciting first piece of data is that we were able to achieve that. And we actually um, partnered with FSTAR because of their intellectual property. They had a decade's worth of IP around FC engineering. So that was, that was a really important engineering step step one, and we showed that it worked in non-human primates. And then I'd say, you know, I've had very exciting days at Denali, but the single most exciting day uh, was for two reasons. Um, we do these things that are called Denali connections, where we we kind of record some of our experiences with the disease we're working on. And I had, I had spent three hours with, on video, doing a video with my mom and dad. My mother was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease and recently passed away. And, uh, and I spent three hours, you know, on, you know, with this this video and I left their home and this was during COVID. So it's in 2020. Uh, and I get a, a a phone call from our my chief, our chief medical officer, Carol Ho. And she says, you're never going to believe it. You know, four out of the five patients, the heparin sulfate completely normalizes in CSF, which is our biomarker to show that the enzyme is crossing the blood-brain barrier. So this is with our lead program, ETV, uh, IDS or DNL310. And that was a, a very exciting time. We had, were predicting maybe 50% reduction based on modeling from the animal data. And we had this very robust effect in humans. And I think it really comes down to the surface area of the blood-brain barrier is 400 miles worth of blood vessels. So that's one of the most exciting days. And then since then, you know, we continue to get clinical data, you know, pointing to signs of clinical benefit in these young hunter disease boys who are being treated with DNL310. Uh, and now we're taking that platform. We now have two other transport vehicle enabled uh, molecules in the clinic, one for progranulin. So that's FTD, frontal temporal dementia. And then another one for TREM2, which is for Alzheimer's disease. And recently we got data with the progranulin molecule in healthy volunteers showing a dose-dependent increase in progranulin and uh, in brain as measured through CSF. So, you know, that that's very exciting as, as a validation of the platform. And now it's a broad application, right? This, I, I hear you talking about these biomarkers is really important that you're having the biologically intended effect that you can measure it before you, um, move on to advanced clinical studies where you're really enrolling lots of people and spending the big dollars. I mean, that's a big roll of the dice where now you're talking about clinical endpoints, um, things that are um, a little less quantifiable, a little squishier uh, based on people's questionnaires, uh, observations. Um, why is that so important to you that you you be able to connect these dots? I mean, the reason we selected Hunter syndrome is because it's an enzyme with a specific substrate. The substrate accumulates in brain and is measured in CSF as being increased 10 plus fold. Uh, and it's linear. So you reduce it in CSF, you have a one-to-one -one relationship with reducing it in brain. And it's essentially a way of validating that the molecule is getting across the blood-brain barrier. And you're exactly right. The next leap is then, okay, does that provide a clinical benefit? And you know, I think squishier is one way to look at it. the other, maybe maybe a different term, which I think your term is probably better than mine, is that's very heterogeneous, right? It's like it's from patient to patient, it's heterogeneous. And these and these exams are really challenging. I don't know if you've ever taken like a mini, mini mental status exam or like the ADAS COG or or whatever. You know, I've had that experience with 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 my parents, you know, going into the hospital and taking these exams. I mean, depends on how you slept the night before, you know, you're nervous and, and, uh, yeah. Did you take the test at nine o'clock on Monday morning yeah, or I mean, three o'clock on Thursday afternoon? I mean, there's a difference. Yeah. And, 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 and Luke, we need to do better. Like we need to figure out how to do better. Um, it's not an area that we're actively, uh, inventing, but we are actively partnering. And that was actually one of the reasons for our LARC2 program in Parkinson's disease that we partnered with Biogen because they have invested so much in understanding Parkinson's endpoints. And that's one of the advantages of being able to access, you know, a partner that has these broader 
uh, resources and commitments to these areas. And as we go into late stage studies, that that has been one of our strategies, certainly in Parkinson's and, and, and Alzheimer's disease. Um, now, you mentioned the uh, recent data, the most encouraging data I think most people have seen in Alzheimer's pretty much ever um, from ASIGN, Biogen, Lacanumab. Um, what was your impression of that data presentation and what it means to Alzheimer's and the field of neurodegeneration more broadly? Yeah, I think what I'll do is, again, provide my personal perspective in this field. I started working on A-beta antibodies in 2006. Uh, and I still remember I created like my own my own sl- uh, my own diagram of where all the various epitopes are, and sort of memorized, you know, bapanuzumab, cronuzumab, solanuzumab, panuzumab, you know, gantinurumab, you, you name uh, all of these, um, and actually remembered uh, being in person in 2008 at the bapanuzumab presentation at ICAT, which is now known as AAIC. Uh, and so I've been really involved in this field and have always, you know, used it as as the one of the first paradigms to understanding antibodies in the blood-brain barrier, uh, in addition to developing a number of molecules at Roche, Genentech, Cronuzumab, and, and, and Gantinurumab are two of the Roche Genentech molecules. Uh, and I've seen pretty much all the clinical data from the beginning, uh, including AN1792, which was the active immunization that Elan was working on way back in the day. Uh, it is the best data. It's very rigorous. It's consistent across all the domains. And I think what's notable is, you know, obviously this is this carries a little bit of my own opinion about this, but they're giving 10 mg per kg every other week. So it's a high dose with an epitope that binds, you know, plaque uh, in addition to like, I mean, in addition to aggregated A beta, which, you know, is probably formally turned protofibrils or oligomers. Um, but it has a relationship between plaque reduction and cognitive benefit. And notably, you know, at the same conference, the gantinurumab data was presented, which, you know, had less plaque reduction, little or no cognitive benefit. But then if you do, you know, sort of a subgroup analysis after the fact, there seems to be a relationship. Now, this is after the fact, it's post hoc. But so I think it's, a, it, you know, the way I look at it is, there's a lot of debate is, is 27% enough you're treating a patient who's accumulated amyloid for at least two decades. They're being presented, they have cognitive deficits at the beginning of this study. You're removing their amyloid and actually they're very robustly removing amyloid. But you're down a degenerative cascade that's, I think, very difficult to reverse. That certainly involves tau. Uh, we know that. APOE, of course, is involved. And I, I have to say, I think it's fantastic data considering the timing of intervention. The way that these medicines will ultimately be used, in my opinion, is that, you know, Luke, when you and I are 55, 60 years old, we'll have an amyloid scan or a blood-based biomarker, and we'll remove our amyloid. We'll take a year of the medicine, completely remove plaque, and start that time clock, you know, over again, uh, and it will take another decade to accumulate and 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 therefore, you know, essentially halt or completely, or, or, you know, substantially delay the onset of cognitive deficits. Well, I would certainly like to see that happen. Um, do you, um, what, do you see the FDA, what's the FDA's role here in, uh, in bringing along the development of, of things like that and, and, uh, companies like yours that are trying to make headway here? Um, I know a lot of people, had mixed feelings about the approval of aducanumab a year ago. That was quite controversial. Um, some said there wasn't enough data there, myself included. But this one here, lecanumab, looks like it's going to come through and uh, through FDA approval. Is this going to? Uh, like, have they put up a a welcome sign <laughs> to companies like yours? And what difference does that make? I mean, it makes an enormous difference how the FDA views biomarker data and its relationship to clinical benefit. And you know, I I can't comment. There 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 are different threads in this story that are hard to um, digest. What I can tell you is that the genetic data around APP is definitive, right? And it's and it and it has. There's sort of genetic bookends. There are mutations that are causative. For Alzheimer's disease, and there are mutations that are protective. We had worked on a mutation that's now known as the Icelandic mutation, where 
And we did this study with DECO Genetics where we looked at APOE4 carriers that have a significantly higher risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. And we sequenced uh, APOE4 carriers that were greater than 80 years old that didn't have Alzheimer's and asked, were there protective factors? And what we discovered was a mutation in APP, A673T is the coding variant that reduces APP cleavage by 40% and substantially reduces plaque, you know, obviously A-beta formation and, and, and subsequently plaque formation. It's highly protective in Alzheimer's disease. That provided the sort of example in a broader population of a protective variant where a lot of the mutations like the Swedish and London mutation were causing early onset Alzheimer's disease, you know, age 40, presenile mutations in age 40, the, probably the most well-known is the Antiochia, Columbia, you know, kindred. So you have this gen strong genetic val validation. The question is pharmacologically, when do we ne need to intervene and how much? Uh, and I think if you look at the rationale for approval, uh, the accelerated approval of aducanumab, there are strong, there's actually very strong rationale. And it was forward thinking and not welcome uh, for various reasons, probably mainly around drug pricing, which I won't get into. Uh, but in reality, scientifically, uh, the data, you know, is compelling around amyloid removal and APP. There's a lot of debate around amyloid itself, but I think in some ways what's happened now in the last month or two is validating of that original uh, rationale. Uh, and I think there's a, there's a, there's an underlying, you know, question now is how does, you know, how does a, how do we pay for it? Right. And I think that's a very important question, but let's not forget that, you know, there is this very, you know, robust genetic rationale, these biomarkers, and we're intervening so late in the disease, the fact that we see anything and now pretty robustly see something. Uh, I think it's a very unique opportunity. And I hope that we're forward thinking about how we do this. I really, prevention is going to be the path. There's no doubt about it. But the FDA, the, the FDA was, I mean, uh, you know, as you point out that with, I don't know if the welcome sign is the right way to describe it, but they um, were forward thinking, you know, and, and and I can see, I totally agree with the criticism around the clinical data and its assessment. Um, but, I, you know, now you see with the Canamab, the very robust data package. Yeah, yeah. You, you do have some time at Denali to uh, to figure out that pricing and access strategy. Right. Uh, <laughs> you, you, you got some things in it's, front of you. For it's, you know, it's on the horizon. I and mean, we have now three medicines in late stage clinical development. You know, we have our LARC-2 programs in phase three and a phase 2B, both potentially registrational. We have, you know, our RIP kinase program, which is in a large phase two. Um, and then we have, of course, the Hunter program in phase two, phase three. Basically, it's a phase three registrational study. Uh, and, you know, we had a chief commercial officer, Katie Ping, join us um, about a year ago, a year ago. And, you know, it's, it's an exciting time. You have to think about how these medicines will fundamentally improve lives. Uh, and the studies designs are really focused on showing that, right? And so you're going to get some um, some data in 2023 that's going to influence um, the the commercial uh, future of these programs. Well, and I think you know they're all actually the examples I gave you. Those late stage studies kicked off this year, and they're anywhere between one year and two year endpoints. So 2023 is not the year that those studies read out. Uh, uh, but we have a lot of other studies reading out in, you know, 2023, mainly phase one B's and phase ones and, and, you know, a portfolio of seven programs, bringing an eighth program forward, a, a, an additional enzyme. And I think the area that probably is the, 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 the most like broad impact future area for Denali is our ability to get anti-sense oligos across the blood-brain barrier, no longer requiring, you know, intrathecal delivery. And that's, that's in our discovery portfolio. So it's this broad sort of late stage to early discovery portfolio, and we want to invest across the board. You got seven clinical programs. Is that right? That's correct. And about a little over a billion in cash as of the last quarterly uh, report I saw, uh, you still um, have a discovery group. Um, oh. A lot of companies are make, having to make hard decisions in a rough year here about programs that they advance and whether they can continue to do discovery. How are you thinking about the the challenge of doing all the things you want to do with the resources that you have? Yeah, I think two things for us, or three things that are important for us. One is 
we are a discovery and early development organization. We're becoming a late stage clinical development organization, but our partnerships help very much in that respect. You know, the LARC2 program is being advanced by Biogen, the RIP kinase by Sanofi, and our Progranulin TREM2 program are in partnership with Takeda. So it helps both on how we pay for them, but also on how we have to resource them. But we are very committed to the discovery side. And you're you're correct on 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 the capital front. We raised capital um uh a little over a month ago, brought in another, you know, 300 plus million uh and have a substantial runway. And we consider ourselves really fortunate because we can prioritize our portfolio and through you know these key partnerships continue to advance to broad, a broad portfolio. So we we will have an equal amount of investment in our discovery efforts this next year as we have this year, uh, including building out this new, what we call the OTV or the Oligo transport vehicle. Last thing I want to ask you, uh, Ryan, um, what's um, one thing you've learned uh, as a CEO of one of these companies that uh, that you didn't know or nobody told you about <laughs> before you uh, decided to t- take this plunge and do this? I think the two things that have always I've loved and have motivated me about doing drug discovery and science is first is those discoveries, you know, celebrating those little discoveries all along the way. But the second, and it's actually become more real to me, and I think mainly because of my own personal experience in, with Alzheimer's disease, and and is that having a purpose is so important. I mean, we we live in a uh, a world where it's hypercritical. Everyone's critical of everything. You know, the, the certainly the media can be very critical. You have to be doing what you're doing because you passionately passionately believe that it matters that you're purpose driven. Uh, and I think what I what I've learned is that that is so important to me and to so many people that work at Denali. I mean, we have we on average I think we have about sixty percent of the people who work at Denali have someone impacted by Alzheimer's or Parkinson's. And and I you know I I hear this and I've heard people say it, um, but now having lived it for almost eight years. It's it's it. I mean, it's the it's the driving force, and and I think being purpose driven, you know, and allowing yourself to have that passion, but then also being very analytical and having to make tough decisions. And so I think that that's just meant more than anything uh, to me. That's what gets you and your team through the hard times. That's right, and you know, th- it's hard times right now in biotech, and we have so many friends, you know, working at different companies, and and. You know, it's challenging, and and I think you have to know why we're doing what we're doing. I just wish the world understood that. I wish we could do a better job of explaining, you know, the benefit that our medicines have, and understand a system where you know the biotechnology and the pharmaceutical industry, you know, had that positive impact. And we saw it. You know, we saw it kind of transiently uh, uh, in 2020, but in a very big, big way. Uh, and that's, you know, I, I would love to see that. And I think it comes down to, you know, being very clear about expectations when we deliver medicines for patients. Well, I think we're in a hard time with neuroscience. You know, you and I have been privileged enough to see some incredible advances in cancer and rare disease. And uh, we we're, there haven't been as many success stories. There, there have been a few, um, but not as many in neuroscience. The biology has just, it's a little, it's been behind. It's, it's making strides. I think we can see some of it, uh, with the work that you and, and other companies are doing, but, um, uh, a, a few products, uh, success stories will go a long way toward, I think, making everyone feel better about some of what's, um, you know, these other issues on price and access, uh, the, um, that we do need to talk about. Yeah, I agree. That being said, Luke, even with extraordinary successes in some therapeutic areas, we haven't we haven't been able to you know explain it in such a way that the world understands how transformative these medicines are. And you probably know what areas I'm talking about. Anything from hepatitis C to cancer to beyond. You know, we there it is. There is never a better time to be in biotech. It is such an exciting filled and the technology, all the new technologies, you know, enabled through, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of computer-based, you know, 
computational methods and in addition to biomarkers and I mean just incredible advances in in technologies and I you know, I can I can't imagine founding uh, Denali 20 years ago the, the 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 speed with which we're able to make cell lines and proteins and you know recombinant DNA it's unbelievable and it's such an exciting time yeah way way better i totally agree and i can't wait to see more good things come out of the the neuroscience field um ryan thank you so much for joining me today on the long run thank you luke thanks for listening to the long run a production of timmerman report pedro rosado of headstepper media was the sound editor music is from d.a wallach see you next episode